Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Jeff Chrysler, who is co-author of Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Today we will discuss behavioral economics. Jeff's bio describes him as just a typical Princeton-educated lawyer turned award-winning comedian, best-selling author, and champion for behavioral economics. His second book is Dollars and Cents, co-authored with Dan Ariely. Jeff tries to use behavioral science, practical experience, and humor to understand, explain, and change the world. Jeff is also editor-in-chief of PeopleScience.com, a new thought leadership platform for applying behavioral science to the modern marketplace. He won the Bill Hicks Spirit Award for Thought-Provoking Comedy. He writes for television, politicians, and chief executive officers. Jeff, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. What is the Bill Hicks Spirit Award for Thought-Provoking Comedy? Um, it is one of my uh, personal greatest honors. Uh, but what it really is, is it, it's an award for this comedian named Bill Hicks. Some of your listeners may have heard of him. Uh, he uh, passed away, gosh, it's probably been 50, maybe 20 years ago now. Uh, and he was one of the first comedians that really sort of spoke out um, in a way that a lot of comedy does now, like sort of directly political, but a personal aspect to politics and very raw um, and, and uh, you know, sort of uncensored and um, without worrying about commercial viability, which is one of the reasons why he's not well known. Uh, and the award was actually presented by his parents. Um, and there were only two awards ever given out. I won the second year it was presented and it was just to sort of uh, reward someone for sort of having his spirit. Uh, and at the time, uh, and I haven't gotten into my whole background, but I spent many years as a stand-up com- uh, comedian, and I was doing a lot of political humor after law school. It just sort of, um, I joke in my bio as a typical lawyer turned comedian, uh, but that was the route I took, and I sort of, uh, you know, tried to talk a lot about politics and cheating and uh, hypocrisy, and for some lucky reason, they thought that I was worthy of the award. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And it was, I, I will say, it wasn't just about being political. It was also just about um, what I've really prided myself on throughout, which was taking ideas and subjects that seem to be difficult uh, and making them accessible through humor. Uh, you know, thought-provoking comedy is the sort of tagline to the award, and so politics is one area, but, you know, throughout the rest of my work, I've always sort of taken pride in making what seems challenging and hard to access and making it so that people can get a grasp and talk about it. That's a pretty broad spectrum from law to behavioral economics to comedy. How do you bridge all of those? uh... Uh, I drink a lot of caffeine (laughs) in a lot of different formats. Uh, To me, there's a, there is a common thread between comedy and, and satire, humor, uh, and behavioral economics, uh, and, you know, we'll obviously talk more about what that is all about in a second, and that it, it sort of looks at the, um, the reality of human behavior and the structures that guide our decisions and that, uh, create repercussions for our decisions and, and how people, um, sort of use these structures, whether they're law, 
and contracts or their just power structures or their our human psychology and people use these systems uh, both for their own gain and uh, to get things from other people take advantage of others by by cheating them and also on a positive side how it can be used to um, help us all achieve our goals and have better habits and uh, you know build a stronger community you know the the law can has created society as we know it and the structures around it um, and that's a wonderful thing but it also you know has the flip side so to me uh, humor satire behavioral economics psychology uh, law they're all sort of um, different sides of a of a three or six sided coin if you will so let let's talk about behavioral economics what exactly are we talking about what is behavioral economics so behavioral economics is this field that uh has gotten more attention in the last few years uh, and, and basically what it is is it looks at the unconscious decision making forces um, that impact our lives it's commonly been discussed and, and studied in financial decision making or healthcare decision making or design and marketing um, but it has applications across a broad range of um, human behavior, both personal and professional and organizational um, and even societal. Sort of how do we make the decisions that we do? What are the forces that impact our choices, whether it's in a supermarket or at the ballot box or um, as we build a company? Uh, and essentially, it combines traditional economics, you know, supply and demand and all those good graphs with human psychology. Uh, and it looks at what is really happening when we make decisions, not just sort of what people might put on a survey or what the you know economics say happens. Um, you know, at Princeton, I studied traditional economics with, um, you know, Ben Bernanke, former head of the Fed, was a teacher. Alan Blinder was another professor, some other old white dudes. So, you know, it was great education in the traditional sense. Um, I kid. Uh, but it was a good education, and I understood traditional economics and how it was supposed to work. But to me, it didn't um, resonate because it wasn't how people really act. You know, traditional economics is you go into a supermarket and there's milk that's 20% more expensive than the supermarket next door that you're going to go next door to buy that milk. Well, that's great in theory, but in the real world, you have, you know, a, a screaming baby in your shopping cart. You're texting a client. You have to go pick someone up at soccer practice. You got to cook your meal. There are just all these other real life stresses and uncertainties and challenges that we face. And so we don't make decisions based upon rational choice about being the most informed economic person that there is. We make our decisions as humans. And Behavioral economics, and it's also called behavioral science, and sometimes it's called the science of nudges or decision-making science. Um, it looks at how people actually make their choices. What are the forces that impact them, um, and and how does that play out in a, in combination with like traditional economic or legal or other decision-making structures? Um, and it's been fascinating for me, uh, you know, having been exposed to it when in the process of writing this book and some other work I did with my co-author Dan Ariely to to have it almost be a shine a light bulb, it was sort of that light bulb moment on everything that I had sort of intuited and studied otherwise um, as this this field that really using the scientific method explained what was going on and why people were making the decisions and, and to look forward uh, now at all the potential applications of behavioral science, um, whether again it's in like personal financial decision making and how we spend and save or 
it's in investment opportunities or it's in our healthcare decisions and our diet and exercise and, and medication or it's in how we have employee engagement in our company and, and habits and loyalty and incentives um, and just all of these fields that have sort of um, been developed based largely upon an intuition about humans behave now have access to this scientific tool of behavioral economics to sort of prove what it really is going on and what the forces are that are at play and then to build upon that to create better systems and outcomes for, for everyone involved. So it's very exciting. Richard Thaler, another big name, recently won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, 2017. Um, so it's uh, it's an exciting time, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of groups, different types of businesses um, that are really interested in learning how they can apply this to their fields um, in all sorts of different ways. Would you give us some further examples of how people behave, how we all behave in unexpected ways, in ways that defy traditional economic theory? Um, I think one of the best examples that that resonates with people is I, I sort of ask people to raise their hand if they promise themselves sometime in the last two weeks, they promise themselves that they'd wake up the next day and they'd go and get some exercise. As people raise their hands and then I say, okay, keep your hand in the air if raising your hand is the only exercise you've gotten in the last two weeks. Um, and it normally gets a little laugh and it's quite delightful. <laughs> but it also demonstrates self, the issue of self-control. Um, and self-control is no one here is a stranger to the concept of self-control and how we lack it and how we often promise ourselves not to get exercise. But, you know, behavioral economics sort of digs a little deeper into what are the root causes of self-control. And and this example is, I think, very resonant for people because it's very personal. And it shows that even when we make a promise to ourselves uh, and we promise ourselves to do something that's going to make us healthier and happier and live longer and have a better life and have a better relationship with our family. Even when we make a promise to ourselves, we can't keep that promise. So how can we be expected to keep promises to uh, our clients and colleagues and coworkers and superiors and, uh, you know, to ethical obligations and to financial obligations and creditors and debtors? And so it's it sort of, to me, it's the, um, sort of umbrella challenge that we face that even when we know what the right decision to make is, we often don't do it. So, you know, the issue of self-control is is one big area that behavioral economics has studied. And um, to get a little granular for a moment, you know, they've there's some fascinating looks at it in the financial context, financial decision making. Like people don't save enough, right? They don't put aside enough money for retirement. So they've tried to understand why that is. And, and one of the reasons is because, you know, our future self, who we are in 30 years or 40 years or whenever we're retired. And, um, you know, that person is really hard to connect with. It's hard to connect emotionally with me at age 70. Whereas me right now at age, none of your business, uh, me right now, it's easy to connect to my emotional needs, my need to spend more and go on a vacation or to or have a nice dinner or to, you know, use that money that could be for 30 years later. Now, like I have an emotional pull. And so many of our decisions, particularly in the financial area, are really driven by emotion. And we often um, don't admit that. We're not even aware of how much emotion and need and temptation um, and, you know, sometimes it's anger and sometimes it's frustration and sometimes it's uncertainty. How much these emotional triggers sway our decisions, even the big ones that should be totally rational. 
Um, so one area where behavioral science has looked again is it's like, like retirement saving for the future. And they found when they use techniques to make that future self, that person 30 years from now, um, more specific and more defined. Um, and, you know, for instance, one, they use uh, a virtual reality headset and they have people interact with a um, computerized version of themselves in 30 years. Uh, so I see old Jeff and I talk with him. After doing that experience, I'm more connected to the future and they find people make decisions to save more for their retirement because suddenly there is a concrete notion of that future self. You know, obviously that's not like scalable for, for people to apply that to their business, but it, but it shows the impact of connecting to the future emotionally and how the, the understanding that behavioral science provided of like why we don't save and why we don't have self-control can then lead to solutions. Um, you know, just on this point real quick, one, sort of simple trick that, that has been found to be really effective is in this context, the saving context, is when you, you know, ask people how much they want to have saved for retirement. If they um, answer, you know, I want to have this uh, amount saved in 30 years versus I want to have this amount saved, you know, on uh, March 25th, 2049. In other words, they use a specific date. That specificity makes people then save more and connect more to their future. Um, and that is sort of, again, I got a little granular, a little detailed, um, but it's one of the very specific um, outcomes and, and systems that people can use as a result of the forces and principles that behavioral science has revealed. Tell us about anchoring along those same lines, even when we think that the information isn't going to influence us, anchoring says otherwise, right? Right. Uh, so anchoring is this notion um, that information that we get, the first information we get about something, for instance, in the in the uh, in a, a decision to purchase an item, let's say a car. Right. You see the, the manufacturer suggests a resale price like that first number is serves as an anchor in our mind to what the price should be. Um, and it's very difficult for us to sway too far away from that, that, you know, when you go to most of us, when we go to purchase almost anything, like in a vacuum, we have no idea what something should be worth. We have no way to value it. So what do we do? We we compare it to other items that cost similar. Or we compare it to what we know we paid in the past, or we look at the price that's listed. Um, and you know, ultimately, what we should do is is think about um, what's called the opportunity costs. Uh, essentially, like what we're trading off. You know, we buy this car now. What does that mean? We cannot buy in the future. Um, and I can go into more detail on those, but but we should be having a different calculation, but that different calculation is really challenging, so we fall for these shortcuts um, and these little traps, and anchoring is a big one because we see something that in our mind makes us think, okay, this is what this should be worth, this is the price that should be paid, and it's very difficult for us to move beyond that. And there's a certain... I don't know if the term is multiplier effect, but once you've become anchored for one issue, then that has an influence that you build on. Is that right? right. Yeah. So in many ways, uh, you know, if you think about the, the classic spending example uh, is the, the $5 latte, right? The, the Susie Ormans of the world always say, don't buy your $5 latte every day. You can save that and have retire early. Um, and I don't mean to disparage Susie Orman. I don't know her work that well. But, uh, you know, the point is everyone talks about the $5 latte being the spend. And if you think about how the $5 latte really you know, works against us. 
we might the first time we go to a, a Starbucks, um, and Starbucks is great, not sparing them. Uh, the first time we go to Starbucks, we might actually stop and stare at the thing and say, "Should I spend five dollars on this latte?" We might think about it, and we decide, "Okay, sure." The next day when we show up, we don't go through that whole thought process again because we don't have the mental energy to keep doing that, and we have other things on our mind. But we fall back and think, "Hey, you know what? Jeff yesterday made a decision to that it was fine to buy this, and I trust Jeff, right?" So I'm sort of trusting the decision I've already made and that happens the next day and soon it just becomes automatic and you you lose sight of that first you know sort of head scratching should I do this or not and the fact that you've done it yourself reinforces it even more um, and and it's particularly strong because who's our most trusted advisor who do we trust more in the world than anybody it's ourselves right we believe uh, you know that we have our best interests at heart which would seem to make sense um, but oftentimes when we make one sort of quick rash decision and then rely upon that quick rash decision in the future, we can lead ourselves down a road of just repeating that same mistake over and over and over again. Um, and again, you know, $5 latte doesn't add up to tons, but, you know, think about you, if you lease a car and every three years you get a new, a new lease, you know, that's a really hard calculation to figure out. So you're going to fall back upon the choices you've made in the past. Um, and that can be a challenge. What do you do? Because oftentimes when we think, I think you had an example with, uh, was it realtors that mm -hmm. saw a price and they swore that they had not been influenced by the price, but the research said otherwise, right? Right. Right. So this is a um, well-known experiment uh, in Tucson, Arizona, uh, many years ago. I it was in the 80s. And the <laughs> For anyone that's bought property recently, uh, I don't remember the numbers, but the prices will probably make you cry. <laughs> but basically, they, they listed uh, a home, and they listed it at a few different prices, and they, they showed those prices as the list price, you know, just what was listed, you know, a seller's putting this price. Um, they showed it to several realtors, you know, experienced real estate professionals who knew the market, who knew the comps, who knew all the, the details of construction, everything you know, um, and they found you know, that the the realtors that saw, you know, the lowest price um, were then, everyone was then asked, you know, what do you think this home is really worth, right? What would you recommend someone pay for? What's the real value of this home? Um, and the people that saw the lowest price had a slightly lower, uh, you know, estimate of what the real value was, and the people that saw the middle price was a little higher, and the people that saw the high price was even higher still. Even though that price shouldn't affect anything, it should be, what is the comparables? What's the value? What is it worth to someone to buy it? Um, but that price sort of stuck in their minds. Now, to the credit of the realtors and real estate agents, uh, they also did the same test with just lay people, people that weren't real estate professionals but maybe were looking for a home. And the effect was much stronger with those lay people, right? The lowest price had people really estimate down by the low price, and the middle was close, and the highest was high. So the swing was greater for those that were less informed. So being informed, being experienced does mitigate the impact of anchoring and these list prices, but the anchoring list prices still has impact, even for those that are well informed. Um, and, you know, to, to that end, sort of on the, uh, the idea that even people that know about money still don't have control and still fall for these tricks, um, that's true sort of in all these various principles that we talk about in my book and other things in other areas, you know, people science, um, you know, I will, I'll give talks to, uh, you know, wealth advisor firms, people that advise others how to invest their money. And, and almost every time I'll have a conversation after a talk 
where someone will tell me that the company's highest performer, the person that's best at advising other people what to do with their money, has the most problems managing their own money. Right? That you know, if you think about it, it's it's easy to say to you know Joe Smith, hey, you should do this for your college savings for your kids and your retirement savings for yourself. That's easy to look at a spreadsheet and graphs and say this is what you should do. But then when it becomes about you and yourself, suddenly that's personal, that's emotional. Those are my kids, right? That's my future. And even if you know about what to do, even if you have the spreadsheets and the data right in front of you, you still are falling prey to that mistakes. Sometimes even more so because you know money, uh, because you think you're infallible, right? You go back to that thing like you trust yourself the most. Um, and I, and I often use that example just to, to heighten like, one of the challenges we face in financial decision making is that I think we, we kind of believe everybody else knows what they're doing and that we're the only ones that don't know what we're doing with money. But the truth is nobody knows. Right? And I sort of wish that um, if I could accomplish one thing with my book and the, and the talking about financial decision making is to sort of make talking about money a little more acceptable. Um, it's sort of it's a taboo subject. I think, uh, you know, people talk about how much they spend, right? We, you know, they, they talk about the new house and new car and the college and, and the clothes and you can see all that, but we don't really talk about how we save and how we invest and, and the challenges of money. Um, and I wish that we did that more. Um, and I realize I strayed a little far from your question about the anchoring and the real estate agents, but, uh, that, that's a point I don't want to get lost in all this is that, um, particularly when it comes to money and also in these other realms, like, we often believe that we're the only ones that are in the dark and the truth is very different. The truth is that most of us um, are in the dark and if we talked a little bit more about it, it might help lighten everyone. Talking about money, one of the chapters in the book that I found surprising was your discussion about money, specifically the pain issue and mm-hmm. how to deal with pain before, during, and after. Why don't I let you explain it? Sure. So uh, there's a principle called the pain of paying. Uh, and, you know, this reflects the discovery that when we pay for something, when we hand over a $20 bill, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain does. And, you know, if you think about it, that should be a good thing, right? I mean, pain serves a, serves a purpose. It makes us stop and pay attention to what we're doing uh, at that moment. And that is what we should do when we're making decisions, whether it's financial or otherwise, is stop and look and say, is this the right choice? Um, but what often happens is that in real life, we don't always let ourselves feel the pain of that pain. We kind of numb it. And that's human tendency. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a great routine, um, which we quoted in the book and people can find online. But he's talking about the development of helmets. He says, you know, helmets were created because people were doing all these activities that were cracking open their heads. And instead of stopping the head cracking activities, they just put it on a little piece of plastic. Well, if you think about it, a credit card is just a little piece of plastic and it numbs that pain of paying. Um, and it makes it so we're not as conscious of the choices and therefore we don't think about them as much. and We're more likely to make um, irrational decisions and spend too much and forget what we paid. Um, one of the reasons why the credit cards are so effective is because of what you're getting at because they play with sort of the time element, essentially the time between uh, payment and consumption of a, of a good or service. Um, like think about it, you go to a restaurant and you, you eat the meal and then you give your credit card at the end of the meal. You're not actually giving over the money then, you're just sort of signing a promise that says I'm going to pay this later. 
then later comes a month down the line and you get the bill and you don't remember that specific meal. It was a month ago and it's combined on this bill with a hundred other purchases. Um, so by separating the time between, uh, uh, decision and the consequences of that decision makes it more likely that we don't value that decision and we don't think about that decision as deeply. Um, you know, specifically when you think about, um, paying and sort of before, during and after there, there are different times when the, the payment can happen in relation to, uh, having a good or service or consuming something. Uh, an example that we use in the book is about, um, you know, when my wife and I went on a honeymoon, we prepaid for the honeymoon. Now, we paid more than we would have if we had gone and paid as we went, uh, but it was a decision we made because we wanted to go to just enjoy ourselves and not think about spending and be able to, like, order that second bottle of wine and, and have a drink on the beach and do all these activities um, that we wanted to without thinking about money. Uh, and we had a great time. And that was part because we paid before and the financial decision and, and the, the thoughtfulness and whatever stress related to the money was in the rear. And then we could just go and, and anticipate the honeymoon and enjoy the honeymoon when we were there and then reflect upon it afterwards. Um, we had friends on that same trip who uh, paid for their honeymoon at the resort after when they checked out. So it wasn't before, it was after. And they also had a good time, but, you know, you could see little moments when they knew there were consequences and maybe they didn't order that second bottle of wine. Uh, and that was because that, that pain of paying was yet to come. Um, and, and by doing it afterwards, they were um, more likely to think about it in the moment. Um, and they probably spent a little bit less than we did. Uh, and, you know, it's a question. who had, I, I wouldn't compare who had a better time, but certainly we were not thinking about money and, and they were. Um, and then, of course, the most sort of painful way to spend money uh, and the way that would make you make the best uh, or maybe not the best, the most rational decisions um, would be to pay while you're consuming something. Right. Like in the honeymoon context, you pay at every meal, um, you pay every you know time you want a towel, you pay for every little item. Or imagine if you're just having a meal uh, and you pay per bite. Right. That's the most efficient way to pay the least amount of money. But that's not really pleasurable. You end up taking giant bites and not enjoying yourself or you end up in a honeymoon, not enjoying yourself, stressing about every little spend. Um, and, and I think that that, that framework uh, provides an opportunity, not just to show how, you know, when you're building systems and you're thinking about your own spending or how to create spending for your, your clients and, and colleagues, how, you know, the, the timing of the payment really does impact how much people will spend and how much they'll feel it. But also reflects this idea that there is a spectrum of the pain of paying. And we can dial that up or dial that down depending on what our goals are. Um, you know, all of these sort of fintech developments, Apple Pay and Easy Pass and automatic bill pay, they, they dial way down the pain of paying. They make it super easy to spend. And in my opinion, that's not necessarily a good thing uh, because they make spending um, less thoughtful and people are more likely to spend more. Uh, but at that same time, you know, you could use that sort of dial to make it, so that you save more for retirement. Right? You, if you have apps or processes in your business where people can save, put aside more money for retirement or their savings account or, you know, impact whatever their financial challenges are in a way that's that's more automatic, that's a great use of the pain of paying. Um, if you look at our vacation, like we knew that we were eliminating the pain of paying, we were dialed it down and we knew that we were spending more, but it was our decision, right? It wasn't a decision of, um, some company that was sort of secretly trying to get our money. It was something that we were aware of. And, you know, my, again, thinking of my big delusional goals, like by providing the awareness of these principles, it's been like the pain of paying to both consumers and organizations 
um, that then they are the ones aware of the impact and making those decisions. Uh, you know, we don't we don't want people to go through their lives, you know, having taken giant bites and and stressing about every decision and um, but being aware of the different places and knowing themselves and their contextual problems, right? Like you have some people have trouble; they spend too much at restaurants. Some people spend too much at bars. Some people don't save enough. Whatever their issue is, using these tools and principles to adjust for yourself um, is ultimately the goal. If paying with a credit card makes us more likely to spend more money because mm-hmm. we're not feeling the pain, as you were saying a minute ago, and so therefore it is advisable to pay in cash or perhaps with a check, is that reflected in the way that consumers spend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if I understand the question, and, and forgive me, um, correct me if I don't, if you think about the uh, the spectrum of, of what, where the pain is, the most painful way to spend is with cash. And by being the most painful, people will spend less. And then there's cash, and then checks are, are still sort of painful. Um, a debit card is a little more painful than a credit card. Uh, and the reason for that is essentially it comes out of your checking account. Um, it takes money away as opposed to promising to pay later. And we could get into the nuts and bolts of that if you want, but that's, you know, for, for the purpose of this, uh, then a credit card and then these different technologies sort of go forward, you know, automatic bill pay and, and the, the easy pass and the, the swipe cards and, you know, Apple pay and all that. Um, so we do, it is reflected in the studies and the data that people um, spend more and tip more and forget what they're spending, the sort of less painful the method, right? Cash, people are very frugal. Um, they don't spend nearly as much. Um, and it's it's something that a lot of advisors suggest, and there's some truth in it. Like if you find yourself spending way too much month to month, take a month and don't use your credit card, and you'll see how that impacts your spending. Um, you know, another way to approach it is if you spend a lot, after a month, Go through your credit card bill and do so with a trusted friend uh, and explain every purchase to that friend, like why you did it. Um, if you're not comfortable doing that with a friend, then just explain it to yourself. And you'll find that there are will be purchases that you sort of don't really have a good reason why you did that. And again, that knowledge then will inform your future decisions. It's that chance to stop and think that maybe you don't do every day at the coffee shop, but suddenly you do here. Um and you stop and say, oh, you know what? Why am, why am I getting, or why am I paying for cable TV? I never watch TV. Or why am I, you know, buying a new pair of shoes every month? Whatever your, the little things you discover, um, you know, I, I sort of left to some solutions, but those are, but the answer to the question is yes, the, this pain of paying is reflected in how consumers really do behave. So let me try phrasing the question differently. <laughs> do consumers use their credit cards more often or do they pay in cash more often? Great. Um, thank you for the clarification. I have not seen recent data, but uh, I will say broadly speaking that people are using credit cards um, and sort of non-cash payments a lot more than cash. Like cash is getting phased out. Um, I'm sure your listeners have come across restaurants and and cafes and different places that don't even have a cash option. Um, there's a there's a coffee chain. I think it's national. It's a blue blue something. Um, I should know. But there's a, there's one here in my town. Um, 
that doesn't you can't pay with cash. You can only pay with a credit card or an Apple Pay or something like that. Uh, there are countries around the world that are coming close to being non-cash countries, some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, so, so yes, people pay with credit cards and other financial tools a lot more than cash. Is it the credit card companies that are driving that move, or what? what's behind that? Um, I think the credit card companies are driving some of it, but what's actually interesting, and I, I went to a, a conference recently, I was speaking with um, some credit card companies, they're actually doing a little bit of catch-up to a lot of these like startups and, and apps, like the PayPals and the Squares um, of, the, of the world that are sort of making – payment and transferring money as easy as pushing a button on your phone. Um, so, you know, the credit cards are involved in that. They're seeing that's the, that's the future of payments, so they're developing their own tools. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of the acceleration is actually being driven by the technological advances and the fact that we can do so much on our computer and our phone that used to at least be done with check, if not with a cash. Um, I mean, I, I when I, I recently did my taxes and I always looked through my check ledger to make sure I don't miss anything. And I was surprised I barely wrote any checks all of last year. Whereas that used to be every month, I probably wrote 10. Um, and so, you know, the technology is driving it. And of course, credit card companies are sort of jumping on that train. Um, but it's not clear, like if they're, if they're driving or if they're the co-pilot, if you will. Along those same lines that you were just talking about, writing checks versus automatic bill pay or having the bank send the money on your behalf. You also seem to think that it's better for you to write the check rather than to have the money sort of magically disappear from your account. Would you tell us about that? Well, it is, you're going to make a more rational decision. So I, I would just, when you say it's better, I want to qualify that by saying, yes, it's better in the sense you'll make a more rational decision and you'll probably end up spending less if you're writing checks for items uh, versus having something be automatically paid by your bank. Because if you think about when something's automatically paid, like, you know, I'm a victim of it myself, like my, I, I have a car lease that's, that's a, thankfully almost up and the car lease payment is just deducted every month. Um, people have their mortgage deducted every month or whatever their monthly things are. Um, you just sort of not, you're not aware of it, right? Like maybe every now and then you think about it, but like you never have to stop and think, hey, is it worth paying, you know, X hundred dollars a month for this car or um, for this home or, or you might not look at how much your power bill is. If instead of writing a check, you just punch in some numbers, you might not start to think about the impact of that. Um, so it's much more effective to do something like writing a check where for 30 seconds you're sitting there and you're thinking about that spending decision. Um, now, at the same time, and the reason why I qualified you know, the, the word better, you know, if you have a life, as most of us do, um, that is so busy that even at 30 seconds, honestly and truly, is a challenge and you just don't have the time, you know, the, the time saving element is great uh, of sort of these automatic payments. I would just encourage everyone to at least mentally write a check every now and every few months, stop and think about those monthly payments um, and don't just let it go for a year and a year and so on where you're not conscious of all those things that you do. Um, paying a check is the best way to be very aware and to make very rational decisions. It's not always practical for everyone, um, but you know, the closer you can get to that, either 
by literally doing that or creating a, a sort of a construct in your mind, if you will, a process where you at least stop and think about it, the better um, your your spending habits will be. Tell us about that sofa, the $2,000 sofa versus the $200 sofa, and what the takeaway is there. Sure. So the this was um, something that my co-author wrote about uh, that he was deciding what kind of sofa to get for his office, um, and he ended up getting this $2,000 fancy sofa, uh, and he talks about how it was great. Right? He had this really fancy sofa. Uh, but the lesson was that, like, eventually that sofa just didn't become a $2,000 sofa. It just became the sofa that was in his office. Uh, much like if he had gotten a $200 sofa, maybe at first it would have seemed a little dingy, but eventually it would just become the sofa in the office. And, you know, this reflects uh, a bunch of different sort of principles. Um, it's sort of, it's something that my co-author calls the, the hedonic treadmill. Um, hedonic being like hedonism and sort of pleasure and, um, you know, we, we, we might buy something that provides us pleasure, but like on a treadmill and when you increase the speed you're going, eventually you don't feel that moment of increase, right? That moment of purchase, you just are suddenly going in a different speed, but it's the same thing. You're just, you're walking or running forward. Um, so what ends up happening is we spend something and it just, we buy something and just gets consumed into our normal lives. It doesn't, give us continual added pleasure. Um, it just, except for that moment of buying it and when it's still new, it just becomes the sofa in the office. Uh, and that is something that, um, you know, people really should be aware of. There's a, there's a growing, and, and I love this fascinating body of work about um, spending related to happiness um, and just sort of related to pleasure. And, and a lot of what we're finding in these studies is that purchasing an item an object does not provide the same uh, pleasure as purchasing an experience, um, purchasing something that, that fundamentally changes sort of our, our experience of life. Um, it gives us memories. It gives us connection to other people. Uh, you know, I, I think people often ask me what the difference is between millennials and everybody else, and bottom line, I don't think there's that much difference, but I do believe that millennials are much more um, aware of this sort of experience-driven um, uh, consumer drive, like this, they want to have experience, they want to have these memories. Um, and whether they're consciously doing that because of what behavioral science says or, other, or they're just sort of doing that, reflects that like having items, you sort of get that, it, it, they just become the, the couch in your office, the sofa in your office, right? They just become another thing. Uh, whereas like, moments that are more unique and memorable um, have a lasting impact. And and for me, one of the fascinating ways that this sort of broad uh, idea has started to have been applied is um, in uh, workplace incentives and motivation uh, because, you know, buying a thing is, is still more motivational than, for instance, giving a cash bonus. Um, and broadly speaking, I mean, there's some people that acquire just to like absolutely love a cash bonus, but we're finding that you know, giving someone a cash incentive doesn't have the same impact on their long-term motivation and loyalty and engagement um, as providing them like a, a meaningful reward, a gift or experience, right? The the classic example is, you know, a $10,000 bonus check versus like an $8,000 trip for their family to Hawaii. That Hawaii trip ha has a lot more meaning than a $10,000 check. 
at ten thousand dollars is nice. And look, if you're living in scarcity, you need it like it's tremendously powerful. But for most people, that ten thousand dollars eventually just gets folded back into your generic money, right? It doesn't have any. It doesn't become a special thing. It becomes your sofa in your office. Um, whereas that trip is something that um, is unique. Like our honeymoon early, like you get to anticipate it, you get to experience it, you get to have the memories and the pictures and the stories from it. Um, and it becomes, you know, from an organizational standpoint for people that may be part of, uh, you know, small businesses or even large businesses, like the, the person that gets that trip feels more connected to that organization because it's something special that's been provided. Whereas anybody can provide, you know, a check for $10,000. Um, not everybody can provide something that really has that meaning. Um, and so the, the sofa example is, you know, again, it's a different, <laughs> different side of the same coin in that buying just an item doesn't affect us uh, and have a long-term meeting um, as much as having an experience does. Does that, is that relative to the value that the buyer places on the item and mm -hmm. the experience, meaning there are people who like furniture very much, mm -hmm. just as there are people who like shoes or widgets, and there are people who like to travel, and they may not care for furniture or shoes mm -hmm. or widgets. And by the same token, there are people who would rather spend $2,000 on a sofa from a name brand designer. Right. How do you weigh that? Is this behavioral economics or is it just a preference, the value that you place on having a sofa from X designer in your home? Right. Uh, that's a great question. And that uh, reflects the, the challenge of behavioral science broadly in that you know, behavioral science reveals um, the trends of what people do and the behaviors and the forces that impact their decisions. But when it comes down to designing choices for each individual, um, it's contextual. And what I mean by that is, is to right to the heart of what you're saying, like, you know, there may be someone who just loves new sofas, and it has more value to them than anything else possibly could. And for them, that that new sofa would outweigh a trip to Hawaii or a $10,000 check or all these other items because of what they place value in. Um, and so one of the challenges of applying these principles is, is you know, it's not off-the-shelf solutions. It's looking at what each individual um, faces as their own sort of unique problems and their own unique preferences and values, and whether it's individuals or even organizations, right? Like, um, you know, their studies have been done looking at car dealerships and this incentive and this idea that, you know, trips are more powerful than money. Well, what they're starting to discover, and this isn't, this is, you know, not scientifically proven, but broadly speaking, is you know, people that go and are car salesmen might be more uh, selective to be the type that do respond to like a cash bonus. Like that's what they get excited about. Um, whereas if you go to, um, you know, a nonprofit organization and their employees are probably going to be uh, more motivated by, um, you know, genuine heartfelt thanks from the community or, uh, you know, seeing a project that they're working on get past and the home built, whatever the project may be. So, um, you know, whether it's the person that, and what they spend and they love shoes or they love sofas um, or it's the organization and, and the type of people that work there, it is very context dependent. Um, I think that, you know, the, the broad principles apply 
And for that person that loves sofas, maybe the idea of, uh, you know, an, uh, an item versus an experience doesn't work when it's sofas, but maybe it works more for them when it comes to their shoes. Or maybe there's another item that they buy that they don't love as much, and if they were to swap that out for that experience, wouldn't would make the difference. Um, and that's, you know, the hard work is having everyone think about what their own uh, sort of preferences are. Um, and where there's room to sort of apply these principles to make better choices. Tell us about loss aversion and within the context of behavioral economics. Sure. Uh, so loss aversion is this uh, concept that we feel the pain of a loss much more than we feel the, equiv- the joy of an equivalent gain. So um, you lose $10.00. You can only make up that feeling in uh, by gaining twenty dollars, um, and you know the way this sort of plays out is that we uh, are are more likely to act to avoid loss than we are to pursue an equivalent gain. Um, you know, some people may have seen a very similar thing: uh, risk aversion. I'm sure organizations, anybody working in any sort of company. Um, has run across, you know, there are people that are risk averse. Sometimes it's the legal compliance department. Sometimes it's just whoever it is. The risk they they don't want to take the risk of uh, of making a mistake and of having a loss. So they are more likely to avoid that than to pursue the change that might have a gain. Uh, we see that in investing, right? People will react to a, a downswing in the market by selling their stock because that loss is so painful. Whereas an you know an equivalent upswing isn't necessarily going to make them suddenly buy more, um, and you know that is a problem uh, for us in a lot of contexts because we should you know not go on the ups and down swings. We should think you know sort of long term decision making. Um, my my co-author Dan uh, Ariely actually created this amazing scale that uses loss aversion for good. Um, you know, if you think about a scale and you're trying to lose weight, you step on the scale every day, and most of us probably fluctuate within like a range of five or six pounds, regardless of what we're doing. Right? Some days we weigh, you know, 170, some days 173, some days 168, whatever the numbers may be. Um, what ends up happening is if you're trying to lose weight and you step on the scale and and you suddenly um, you're not doing as well, right? Your your weight is higher. Is is it causes a different emotion than if you are doing well that day and that emotion may make us make different exercise and eating decisions. Um, so what Dan's product has done is he's, um, when you step on the scale, it doesn't tell you your weight. It instead looks at the previous two weeks and says where your trend is. Like you're doing well, um, you're on target, you know, you need a little work, whatever. It, it looks at a trend so that you don't see the day like, oh, I'm 173 today, that really stinks, or I'm 168 today, yeah, I can have extra cake. Um, you see that you're trending well. Uh, because it, it, it sort of masks that loss aversion um, and it makes it so that we don't react so strongly to that moment uh, as we might otherwise. And, and people are trying similar tools in investing um, and and other spending and savings decision. That, you know, it can be used as, as something to nudge you uh, in a certain direction. It can also be masked to make sure that you don't overreact to it. Have you heard of this concept of inertia, this middle place where people are disinclined to either buy or sell? And if so, what do you think? Uh, well, I would say inertia 
broadly speaking, is an incredibly powerful force that we sort of don't think of as any force because it doesn't do anything. But the truth is, um, most of us, if there is a, a default option, we'll choose the default option. Like we'll choose not if there's a hard decision to make and, and one of the choices is to do nothing, we're probably going to do nothing because it's hard to make that decision and we don't want to be wrong and we're not sure what the right thing is. So, um, you know, inertia plays out in the context you describe. It also plays out, um, you know, in studies about retirement savings or even organ donation, right? There was a, there's a famous, uh, organ donation study, um, that looked at, I forget where it was, it was in, uh, I want to say Australia. I'll, I can check and, and find out specifically, but basically, they changed the organ donor card. So the default option was, yes, if something would happen to me, I would like to donate my organs. Um, whereas most places, the default was no, and you had to actively check the box. Um, and people went with the default option. Now, in America, if you polls or surveys show that like 86% of Americans want to be organ donors, but only 32% are. And what you can sort of, you know, extrapolate from this is the the reason if you look at the system is all the organ donation it's all um the default option is that you're not you have to take an active choice you have to make a decision you have to overcome that inertia to choose to be an organ donor uh and that inertia is incredibly powerful the default option we sometimes call it the default bias um same works in retirement savings right companies um that have changed their def- when you sign up for your you start a company you're at hr and you sign up you want to you know put money aside in your 401k, if the default option is yes, they've seen a tremendous increase of how many people save for retirement. Now, I should say this is a great opportunity to say, you know, all of these sort of systems and nudges and use of default options and the way you frame questions need to still, like, adhere to an ethical guidelines. And and if you think about companies saying the opt-in is retire, like, people could still choose the other, right? Ethically speaking, you're not bound to one thing or another. That's just where it starts. Um, and it, it's designed to be for the benefit of people making that choice. Um, like any tool out there, these sort of things can be used. Um, you know, you could be a tobacco company trying to get people addicted, or you can be a company trying to help people save more and, and live healthier. And I would hope that all your listeners would, you know, sort of recognize that, that long term, it's best to have everyone sort of pursue their best, um, their best outcomes and build relationships built upon trust, um, rather than deceit. So. That's my mini commercial about ethics. Well, and that, that's a good segue because there are companies and individuals who make their living from studying these concepts and understanding how buyers make decisions when they're mm-hmm. at the grocery store or when they're purchasing big ticket items. You also talk about the $200 CD player or add-on mm-hmm. to the big ticket car purchase and how that works, right? Right. Uh, so there are certainly companies and uh, organizations that will look at these sort of behavioral tendencies and, and use them for commercial purposes. Um, now, commercial purposes aren't inherently evil. They're not inherently bad. I mean, having people get products and services that they want uh, can be a good thing. Um but, you know, there, there are – Richard Thaler, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he wrote a, um, a couple well-known books, and he also won the Nobel Prize. He at one point published an article saying the three sort of ethical guidelines for B 
behavioral design, which is the way that we refer to sort of applying these principles. And he said that it must be uh, it must be transparent. In other words, you know, the, the choice shouldn't be hidden. Um, it must be uh, opt outable, right? You may must be able to have the choice not to do it, right? The three hundred dollar CD changer on a car, which is the example, you must you need to be able to say no, I, I don't want that option. And three, it must be designed with the person's best interest at heart. Um, so, you know, with those as a guidelines, it's a good way to reflect upon what we are designing as products and services. Um, and, you know, I, I've had many conversations with people about, like, I've talked to a bunch of, um, like auto financing group recently. And, you know, an auto company could take the position of, I'm going to hide all these fees and I'm going to get as much money out of this customer as possible. You could do that, but then if you think long term, that person may be more likely to default on a loan. Then you have to go through the expense and the time of dealing with the default. And then you're not going to have that customer returned to buy the next car because they don't trust you anymore. Whereas you could maybe make less money initially, but provide that person a loan that fits them and that they're going to pay all the way through and then that they're going to trust you and, and see you as a reliable advisor for financial decisions and come back to you for the next car and the car that their kids purchase and their kids' kids, et cetera. Um, so, you know, this this goes beyond sort of behavioral design, but thinking long-term instead of quarterly and instead of, you know, individual sale, but instead of relationship building uh, with customers and clients and partners, um, I think would benefit our entire culture uh, immensely. Speaking of ethics, and behavioral economics and big ticket decisions, we have recently had this big national scandal and debate on the lengths to which parents have gone to secure spots in elite universities for their Mm -hmm. offspring, in some cases to the tune of millions of dollars. Clearly, there must be some behavioral economics, I think, in this situation. What is your opinion? Uh, there's a lot to unpack in the um, – what's the name they're given? They're giving it some – is it Varsity Blues? I think they gave yes. it some, yeah, some, some clever-ish name uh, like that. There's a ton to unpack, and, I, and I'll be honest that um, my opinions on it have – have woven in between uh, thinking in behavioral terms and political terms and social terms and, um, you know, my own admitted privilege terms. Like I, I went to Princeton, I went to law school, like I had opportunities. Um, nobody bribed me in. <laughs> but nonetheless, being from that culture and um, in addition, as, as I don't know if we mentioned, but my first book was a satire called Get Rich Cheating um, that was sort of a, like a Stephen Colbert type, you know, pro cheating uh like if you want to get ahead you should cheat um and uh it was a satire it wasn't it was meant to make a point and um, a lot of these cultural trends were reflected in that book a lot of political uh figures that are now in very great prominence were in the book 10 years ago and um so i will admit that my my thinking on this uh, you know i haven't written anything to really focus on it so it's a little blurred um but certainly you know a, a very basic element of behavioral science when it comes to financial decision making, again, is to sort of um, weigh the value of a decision um, and whether or not uh, it's the right choice. And education is something that is it's it's hard to assess the value of that. 
right? It's hard to figure out the value of a degree at all or a degree from a certain school. Now, you could stop and you could, you know, I'm sure there are numbers out there that say graduates from, you know, Princeton average this much yearly salary and graduates from, uh, you know, Ohio State this much and people without a degree are more likely to do this and that job. And that's so you could find the numerical value to attach, but is that really what the value is or are there other sort of intrinsic elements like the experience of college for people, the networking, the opportunities, right? Maybe your goal isn't to make the most money. So like how many graduates that end up having selling a piece of art are there? How many people in theater or whatever? So so it's hard to um, measure. And, and for people that are that are lucky enough not to just be driven by considerations of how much money I can make, but that networking and that um, prestige uh, is important to them. That's even more of a challenge to measure. And I, and I think that in this case, you know, these these parents um, felt that having their kid go to these schools would give them this sort of uh, halo effect of some prestige or some honor or something that was beyond any sort of rational economic calculation. And when they couldn't figure out what it was worth to them and, and they couldn't figure out why it mattered so much, that therefore the the sort of counterbalancing scale, like what what would they pay for it, um, it was impossible to measure that. And they didn't. It wasn't even then just about money, but it was about like risk taking and doing illegal activities and and reputation. And so you know when we think about any financial decision, um, or really any decision, when we can't value our choices, when we can't you know understand what something's worth, that that is when it is so challenging to decide what we would pay for it. And I think that in this scandal, people somehow believe that having their kid at these schools had the value that made it worthwhile to spend millions and to do illegal things and to take spots from other deserving students and all the negative things that they they either were believed that it was worth it or they were just sort of willfully ignorant to it. And it was all driven by the fact that that getting their kid into USC meant so much to them, but they didn't have any idea what that really, that that value was. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I don't want to say people should stop and think about what the real value of a college education is, because again, that's hard to really measure, but you've got to do a little bit more than say, hey, it's worth, you know, doing something completely illegal and unethical. And that is sort of where you leave things in the book, if I understand correctly, this idea that we should stop to think. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about that? How do we sure. avoid misthinking? How do we spend smarter? Sure. So, you know, I'll reflect on something I said earlier, which is that I don't want people to become, um, you know, budget obsessed misers that, that count every penny and that like spend their lives stressed about decision, every financial choice. Um, yes, they will spend less money, but they're not going to have happy lives. Um, so there is a balance, uh, to how much we stress about our money. Um, and, you know, there are sort of three categories that broadly speaking that we put, um, financial decisions into. One is, Sort of the, the small little decisions, like I'm going to buy a newspaper today, I'm going to buy some gum, um, you know, I'm going to buy whatever, some broccoli. Like, don't, you know, we often stress about those little decisions. Um, when the big decisions, the college education, the house, the car, these are ones that we often don't spend as much time. Like, well, you know, we'll 
we'll spend five hundred thousand dollars on a on a home and it's getting some work done and someone says, Hey, do you wanna, you know, add this five thousand uh, dollar kitchen sink? And because in our mind, like five thousand versus five hundred thousand is no big deal, we'll say sure, no big deal. But then we'll go to the supermarket and stress over ten cents more for organic tomatoes. Um, all those tomatoes will never add up to that five thousand dollars, but we've sort of lost our our way. We're not paying attention to the big decisions. So there's the little decisions, the big decisions, and then there are the repeating decisions: the five dollar coffee, the the cable bill, the um, car payments. Um, and what we encourage people to do to sort of keep a level of sanity and um, to also like improve their thinking is um, not to stress the little tiny spends, uh, to not worry about that. The big spends, stop and think about those and, and really pay attention. You know, what seems like little add-ons are a lot of money. So stop and spend time on those. But the, the regular repeated decisions, that's where most of us really fall in the traps, like spending money to go out to eat. Um, you know, and having having friends over, going on little vacations and little trips, like those regular things. And we encourage people just to stop and think now and then. If it's something you do, to stop and think. You know, I'm paying this much for cable every month. Am I even watching TV? Um, or hey, you know, we're going on this vacation every year. We go to the same place. Maybe there's a better place we can go and save a little money. To to just stop and think about your spending now and then, and stop and think about what you're valuing and if you're really getting pleasure and you're really getting meaning out of the things or if you're just sort of doing things on automatic. Um, that college example, right? Like, are you really getting the value? Are you, is it really worth what you're spending on it? Uh, and, you know, I, I believe that stopping and thinking about decisions is something we should do throughout our lives more often. It's just to take a moment, catch our breath. Um, it's a challenge. Modern life has a ton of uh, responsibilities, and we carry around these little items in our hand, these phones that are constantly distracting us and making it harder and harder to think. Um, but if we um, really want to improve what our lives are and the outcomes of our choices, we would we would take some time to just sort of reflect on everything, take a couple deep breaths before we swipe our credit card or before we, you know, join a a club or before we started a company and just take a few deep breaths and, and think about those decisions um, for one or two beats more than we might otherwise. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us from Hoboken, New Jersey. Thank you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Jeff Chrysler, who is co-author of Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. <laughs>